0: There are a handful of verses in the scripture that it seems everyone, certainly every Christian knows. These are incredibly familiar verses. This morning, obviously, we encounter precisely such a verse. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You've heard you've heard that verse countless times. We're, we're familiar with the verse. But as so often happens, our familiarity with a portion of Scripture oftentimes, at least partly, obscures our understanding of that portion of Scripture. We've heard it so often that we think we know what it means when in reality we're missing part of its glory. Now, In our passage this morning, there are great and profound truths about Jesus Christ There is a comfort for his people that knows no bottom and that knows no shaking in the midst of this world. As we find this morning, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that steadies his people. Now, the first thing that we need to see in the passage is that Jesus is the way. Look with me at verses 1 through 6 of the passage. Beginning in verse 1, we read this. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way. As is always the case in Scripture, it's important as we approach our passage to realize the overall situation in which it occurs. Beginning back in John chapter 13, Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room for what we today know or refer to as the Last Supper. This is the night on which Jesus will be arrested. The night before, he will be crucified. Jesus is about to leave his disciples. And he's made this known to them. The disciples haven't always fully understood what Jesus has been telling them, but Jesus has told his disciples what lies ahead in the darkness of this very night. In chapter 13, as Jesus and his disciples are huddled together in the quiet and the intimacy of the upper room, it appears that things just begin to come apart. Although the disciples didn't completely understand why, Judas has left. He's gone to sell the Savior for 30 pieces of silver. Peter, full of bravado, has told Jesus that he will never deny him only to have Jesus tell him that before the morning dawns, he'll deny Jesus three times. As John chapter 14 begins, things are at a low point. The disciples have been confident they've been following this man, Jesus, but the events of the preceding days, the events of that night, they seem to have sent tremors through their confidence. Jesus realizes that verse 1 of chapter 14, Jesus charges them to be at peace, to keep their minds and their hearts from tumult and from worry. They believe in God. They must believe in Jesus. They must trust Jesus as well. You See, this is when it's hard to trust. When your expectations seem hollowed out, the uncertainty starts to crowd in, But Jesus tells His disciples to trust Him, to believe in Him. And He doesn't just command His disciples to be at peace. It's not some bare command. He goes on to give them something to support that peace. He goes on to give them some thing on which to lean. In verse 2, Jesus tells the disciples that in His Father's house, there are many dwellings. You know, some translations, including the authorized version that I'm using, say that in the Father's house there are many mansions. And when we read of there being many mansions, we tend to visualize, at least if you're like me, uh, multiple detached homes, a city filled with opulent homes. But what Jesus actually says is more like what we might envision when we think of there being many dwelling places, something much more like a a massive home, the house of the living God, filled with room upon room upon room, enough rooms for all of the people of God to come and to dwell, not in their own house, but in God's house, not in their homes, in His. That's Jesus' main point, that there is ample room in the house of God for all of God's people. And as Jesus tells the disciples, still there in verse 2, he's going there to prepare a place for them. Now here, of course, Jesus isn't saying that he's going to the house of God and once he gets there, he'll prepare a room for his disciples as if he'll make their bed, tidy up their rooms, make sure the light works. No, the language that Jesus uses means that it is precisely his going there that will prepare a place for them. Jesus is going to his Father, and by going there, he will be preparing a place for his people. Who is able to dwell in the house of God? David asks precisely that question in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Who's able to dwell in the house of God? Only the pure. Only the righteous. And that means not the disciples. Not us. No sin, no sinners can dwell in the halls of the God of infinite and perfect holiness. And yet Jesus, in dying and going to his father, will be preparing a place for his people. What does that mean? How does that all hold together? Well, we know what it means. As Jesus hung on Calvary's cross, He took all of the sin of all of His people on Himself. Everything that would bar His people from living in the house of God was placed on His shoulders and the fires of divine judgment that would have consumed the people of God had they tried to enter into His house closed in in their own deeds, all of those fires of divine judgment fell upon Jesus. All the sin that Jesus Himself hates, all of the sin that is completely contrary to who Jesus is, was placed on Him. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus became that curse. And the judgment of God was poured out until that sin was no more, until it was completely consumed and finished in the judgment of God. Having taken the sin of His people upon Himself, Jesus then gives His people His own righteousness. The righteousness that actually makes a man or a woman welcome in the house of God. Jesus places it upon His people. And He does all of this by being their substitute, by dying in their place, by going to His Father the next day. The Son of God being judged and dying in their place in order that in the house of the living God, there might be a place for them. Because their sin has been judged to the uttermost in Him and His righteousness has been accounted unto them. That's what Jesus means when He says that He goes to prepare a place for them. He goes in order that in the house of the living and holy God, there might be a place for a Peter who will deny that he even knows his Savior. Jesus here has offered to His disciples the most profound of comforts. For these men, huddled, scared in an upper room, there's room for them in the house of the living God. But as we see in verse 5, the disciples seemingly almost completely miss what Jesus means. In verse 5, Thomas speaks up, but he doubtlessly asks a question that's on everyone's mind. And he says, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. And how can we know the way? Thomas has asked for instructions on how to get to the house of God. What's the way there? When we go out into the street, which way do we turn? How do we get there? And it's in response to that question that Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way. How do you get to where Jesus is going? How do you get to the house of God? You get there in Jesus. The way to be in the presence of the living God, the way to have a place in the house of God is Jesus. You hear that carefully. Jesus doesn't point the way, Jesus doesn't show the way, He doesn't teach the way. Jesus Himself is the way. Jesus brings a man, a woman, into the house of God. Not their work, not their obedience, not their reputation, not their grasp of Reformed doctrine, their eloquence in the pulpit, not even their faith, but Jesus. Jesus is the way. Now, some of you may be familiar with evangelism explosion. It's an evangelistic method. Maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe you're not. It doesn't really matter. But in evangelism explosion, they use this question to confront men and women with the gospel. Imagine that you're standing at the door to the Father's house, so to speak, to use the imagery from here. And God asks you, why should I let you into my house? What would you answer? Would you say, because I've lived a good life, because I've been a faithful church member, because I've been an officer in the church, because I've surrendered much and gone to seminary, because I'm a pastor, because I'm a missionary. None of those would open the door to the house of God for you. I suspect none of you would say those things. But would you say, because I have believed in Jesus, please let me into the house of God because I believe in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, even that's not right. If asked why you should be admitted into the house of God, the only acceptable answer is because of Jesus. Because He died in my place and I stand here covered in His righteousness. Jesus is the way. We don't look to our works. We don't even look to our faith. Rather, in faith, we look to Jesus. He is the way to the Father's house. Not our good works, not our service to Him, not our faith, but His blood. Now, brothers and sisters, are you looking to Jesus for salvation this morning? You all are upstanding people, men and women of good reputation, students in seminary, employees at a seminary, for goodness sake. Don't let all of that be a barrier that keeps you from looking to Jesus. It's not just the drug addict. It's not just the flagrant, wicked rebel whose only hope is in Jesus. It also is the respectable man in the church pew, It's the seminary student. It's the seminary professor. It's you. It's me. For everyone, for you, Jesus and Jesus alone is the way into the house of the living God. Don't let anything, don't let any conceit, any delusion of self-sufficiency, don't let anything turn your eyes from Jesus. Don't just learn about him. Know him. Be near him, worship him. Jesus is the way. Place your faith in him. But as we press forward in the passage, we see that Jesus places even more before his disciples. Jesus is the way and the truth. Look at me again at verse 6 and then on into verse 7. Beginning at verse 6, we read this Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Now, in answering Thomas's question, Jesus has told his disciples something radical. He is the way to God, nothing else. The disciples are to look to nothing else. They are not to hedge their bets. They are to look to Jesus and to Jesus alone. But how can they be sure that that's safe? How can they believe Jesus that when they get to the Father's house, He really will be all that they need? Well, the disciples can believe Jesus. They can trust that He is the way because He also is the truth. In Jesus, in who He is, what He does, and what He says, in Jesus, His people know truth. You look again at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 7. Verse 7, Jesus makes this staggering claim. He's made it before. He'll go on to discuss it in more detail even in the verses that follow our passage this morning. But to know Jesus is to know the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. The living God is triune. The one God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And while the three persons, while they're distinguishable persons, they also are one God. The Father is the living God, and the Son is the living God. There is such an identity between them that when you know the Son, you know the Father. You don't know about the Father. You don't know part of the Father. You know the Father, because the Father and the Son are one. There is nothing untrue There is nothing deceptive. There is no mixture of truth and half-truth in Jesus because He is the true and perfect revelation of God Himself. When we see Jesus, we see God. Now, that might seem a little abstract, but there are worlds of comfort there for us. When we see Jesus, we see God. When we see in Jesus a grace and a love, and a mercy that wash clean even our most filthy, even our most degrading sins. That grace, and that love, and that mercy, they're nestled in the very core of who God is. When we hear Jesus call us to Himself, when we hear Jesus say that His yoke is easy, and His burden is light, When we hear Jesus say that he will in no wise cast out any who come to him, there is nothing in the infinitely holy God that says anything contrary. When Jesus reaches out, when Jesus puts his hand on lepers, when he embraces the unclean and makes them clean, that compassion is the compassion of God. It's a compassion that can make you clean, that can make that sin to be as white as snow. You can trust Jesus. You can trust what he says. You can trust what he does because he is God himself. He is truth. In a world that lies, a world that deceives, there's comfort there. Jesus is truth. In Him we see and we know God. But don't miss the challenge there either. Repeatedly in the Scriptures, Jesus calls sinners to repent, to change. He calls His disciples to obey His commandments, to strive for the holiness of God Himself, to show that they love Him by keeping His commandments. You can't read the Gospels and miss the simple fact that obedience matters to Jesus. The holiness of the lives of His people matters to Jesus. And Jesus is truth. In Him we see God. This morning, if your mind, your heart, if it tells you that your pet sin, you know, that habit that's just kind of a part of your routine, that stubbornness that has marked your whole life, that that habit of gossip that comes so naturally, those lustful looks that just seem to happen, that anxiety, that self-absorption that you just can't help, that pridefulness that looks down on others. If your mind and your heart tell you that that sin isn't, really all that serious of an issue. Your mind and your heart are lying. In Jesus, we see God. And we see a God who cares passionately about the obedience and the holiness of His people. The blood of Jesus will wash away every sin. It will clean every stain. Guilt will vanish under the blood of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that he's complacent with the sin of his people. He commands obedience. He commands righteousness. And those commands aren't legalism. They're not suffocating. They're not restrictive. They're truth. Because Jesus is truth. He is the way and the truth. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Continuing on, we find that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Look with me at verse 3 of the passage. Verse 3, Jesus just has spoken about going to His Father's house to prepare a place for His people. And then we read in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus is bound for the Father's house. But He won't be alone there. If Jesus is going to prepare a place for His people, then obviously He'll bring those people to Himself. Jesus won't prepare a place for His people only to neglect bringing them to that place that He's made for them. That's what He wants the disciples to realize. If He's undertaking this effort to prepare a place for them, it is guaranteed that He will bring them to that place. In verse 3, Jesus speaks specifically of coming again, receiving His people unto Himself. Jesus here obviously has in view His return and judgment at the end of the age. This very moment, Jesus is enthroned in heaven above. And those who have died in Him, their bodies are in the grave, their souls are in His presence. But there's coming a day when history will implode when everything will have been completed, when Jesus will return to the earth in judgment and in glory. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, we're told that on that day, on the day when Jesus fully comes again, the bodies of His people will be ripped from the grave. They'll be reunited with the souls of His people. And both those who are living and those who had died at the time of Jesus' return, the whole body of Jesus' people will stand with Him in the new heavens and the new earth forever to live in the immediate presence of the triune God and to live there forever. To know a life without limitation, without bound, without confinement, through all of eternity. Because of Jesus... Jesus is life. Life stronger than the grave. Life more glorious than our most sumptuous dreams. Life filled to overflowing with the love and the bliss of God himself. The disciples don't need to worry about what lies ahead for them. They needn't worry if, as Thomas asks, they seem unsure of where to go and what to do because Jesus is life. And in Him, they have the fullest measure of life everlasting. Life isn't some external commodity that Jesus gives to them. Life is Him. And if they have Him, they have life. Brothers and sisters, the same is true this morning. Jesus is life. You know, all of us fret. We all worry. And you know, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this thing falls through? What if this thing unravels like that other one did? But if you have Jesus, you have life. Life greater than anything in this world. Life more abundant than any disappointment. Life more unshakably secure than any doubt, any anxiety. If you this morning seem in the thick of life, activities, busyness, work, family, Moments that disappear into days that then evaporate into months. If you're in the midst of busyness and decisions and changes, family, career, if you're in the midst of all of what seems to be the busyness of life, don't let that activity take your eyes off of life. Because life is in Jesus. He is the life. Life isn't in work or even in family or in future plans Life is in Jesus. If this morning your body is failing, the ravages of sin are closing in, the flesh is giving way, you feel tired, you feel weak, don't despair. Life is in Jesus. Life isn't in your health, life isn't in your productivity. Your life depends nothing on your next breath because life isn't in breathing. Life is in Jesus. Don't let death, all of the ravages and the weaknesses that all of us know because we live in a fallen world, don't let death take your eyes off of life or empty your days and your thoughts of joy because in Jesus you have life. Jesus doesn't just guide or help with life. He is the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, all of these things, remember, all of these things Jesus says to his disciples for a reason. He doesn't just give them this out of the blue. They've asked him a question. The disciples have asked Jesus a question, and in response to that question, Jesus has said that he is the way and the truth and the life. And that simple fact, that fact that very often gets overlooked, confronts us with the final thing that we need to see this morning. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that steadies His people. Now, perhaps you remember back when we first started, I pointed out that this conversation between Jesus and His disciples is taking place in the upper room. Uh, Within a matter of hours, Jesus will be arrested. 24 hours from this conversation, the corpse of the Son of God will rest in a tomb. And Jesus knows that. He knows everything that lies in between. He knows the brutality and the humiliation that He'll suffer at the hands of His captors. He knows the searing physical pain that He will endure He knows the mental anguish that will tear at Him. He knows that when He's lifted up on the cross, He will become the sin of His people, the eternal Son of God who is spotless and holy and clean, the one who recoils in holy indignation from sin, the one whose very being hates sin. He will bring the sin of His people into Himself and will bear that which He hates. And as the accursed one, he will bear the unmitigated wrath of God against the sin of his people. All of it. Everything from Adam's first rebellion to the adultery and murder of David to the treacherous, betraying denials that Peter would utter that very night, all the way to your own anger and resentment all of the sin of all of his people would be in Jesus and his body and his soul would be the very ground upon which the holy wrath of God consumed the guilt of his people. And Jesus knows all of it. He knows what the coming hours hold. For all of eternity, he has been in perfect and unbroken fellowship with his father. But he knows that in the coming hours, his father will be with him. He'll be in fellowship with him, but it will be in judgment. The one who loved him and the one whom he loved with a perfect love would be his just tormentor. And Jesus knows it. And with all the depths of the horrors of hell itself stalking toward him, Jesus stops to comfort his disciples. Do you see the selflessness, the love for his disciples that Jesus displays here? Jesus' disciples are scared, they're uncertain. And even with the shadow of Calvary creeping over him, Jesus wants to steady them. He doesn't want them to be scared. He doesn't want them to be uncertain. He doesn't want them to waver in the darkness that he knows lies ahead. Jesus wants them to know that when everything else seems to be falling away, when every other foundation seems gone, when they feel themselves to be hunted and hated and alone, Jesus wants them to know that when it seems like a dead man on a tree is all that they have left, he is. And he's everything. If the cheers of the crowd have silence, that's fine. If their families have turned away from them, that's fine. If the world calls them fools, failures, criminals, that's fine. If they seem to have given up everything, even their very lives for a man who has died on a cross, that's fine. Because that man, Jesus, He is the way and He is the truth and He is the life. If they have let drop everything, In order to wrap their arms around him, even if they have doubts, fears, uncertainty, they hold everything. So often this verse is used to trumpet the exclusivity of Christ. Salvation is in him and in nothing else. There's no salvation for those who don't believe in Jesus. There is no salvation for the atheist or for the moralist or for the Muslim or the Hindu. It's impossible to come to God in any other way than through Jesus. He is the way to God and all of the paths lead to hell. He is the truth and all the way are lies. He is the life and all other ways are everlasting death. He is the only one. That's so often what's trumpeted from this verse. And it's true. I mean, the scriptures teach that. This verse teaches that. But don't miss the reason why the Son of God breathed these words across his lips. It wasn't so that the atheist and the Muslim would see that they're wrong. It was so that in the darkness when all of your plans have collapsed, all of your certainties have been undone, and all you know is trembling and fear and uncertainty, when all you have and all that you know is a man who died on a cross, you have everything. Your uncertainties don't need to upset you because in Him you have the way. Your doubt need not make you stumble because in Him you have truth. Your discouragement need not leave you desolate because in Him you have life. I pray that the truth of this passage, specifically maybe of verse 6, I pray that it will make those who deny Jesus to realize that they must come to Him and then by the leading of the Spirit, they will come to Him. But Jesus spoke these words so that His people would know, so that you would know this morning and so that you will know in the days to come as you serve Him, that He is everything. He's prepared a place, and you will be there with Him. And everything else is just a passing through. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that steadies His people. Now, as human beings, we are expert at thinking worthless things to be valuable, at thinking that real meaning resides in things that are passing away. We think that our careers, our possessions, our plans, our families, we think that all the things of this earth are what matter. And having them, and having them precisely as and precisely when and precisely how we want them is what brings us confidence. It's what lifts us up. But all those things are passing away. They'll crumble to the ground. If not this week, then next year, 10 years from now. It's Jesus who matters. It's Jesus who ought to be our life and our confidence. I pray and I hope that all of you have lives and ministries filled with joy, filled with satisfaction. But I hope that that abundance never obscures your realization that Jesus Is all that ultimately matters. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that steadies his people. May Christ be everything to us, even as we wait his return to bring us where he is. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father in heaven, we give thee thanks this morning for the glorious Lord Jesus, he who is the way, the truth, and the life, he who is our greatest treasure, our Redeemer, he who is indeed our life. Now forgive us, O Lord, that we are so easily beset with uncertainties and fears that we so quickly look to and treasure and steady ourselves by the things of this world. I Give us, O Lord, hearts and minds that are fixed upon Jesus, that find encouragement and strength, steadiness from Him. We pray, O Lord, for Thy blessing upon the ministries and the lives of everyone here, both today and in the years to come. I bring great fruit, we pray, be preparing all of us, even now, that we might more faithfully minister the Lord Jesus to others. By Thy Spirit, bring mighty fruit from those laborers. Get glory to Thy name through it. Lord, we ask, O Lord, that even in abundance of blessing, Thou wouldst make us always to be men and women who treasure Christ above all, who walk in His ways, and who love and worship Him with hearts that have been cleansed by his blood. And we ask, O Lord, for thy blessing upon us uh, in the day that lies ahead. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we ask it in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.